I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those principles and explore those virtues that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Hey, welcome back for another week, folks. We are reporting live from uh, from on scene in Pierce, South Dakota. Uh, our tech our tech help is out of town this week, so if um, if there are any hiccups, blame me, your 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 lonely host here. Um, but I've got a lineup that I want to share with you this week. We are in the thick of the legislative session and have a number of bill positions that would like to to keep you all informed on as you as you listen wherever you may be, either on your your favorite podcast player or on Real Presence Radio, uh, broadcasting throughout the upper Midwest, um, but especially to our South Dakota listeners. Um, I am joined today by by my dear friend, Norman Wood. Norman is the uh, executive director of the Family Heritage Alliance, a um, kind of a pro-family religious uh, freedom and pro-life group here in South Dakota. Norman, welcome on the show with me. Hey, thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. So Norman and I are going to run through the bills today. So for those of you who are keeping score at home, I want you to get your scorecards out and uh, get your pen and paper handy because we're going to talk about a number of bills uh, that are filed and kind of just no rhyme or reason here, but starting starting right from the top, um, a couple of bills that the Catholic conferences had public positions on uh, for a couple weeks now. You'll you'll find all this information at our website sdcatholicconference.org. Um, Senate Bill eighty three. This is a bill to ensure that good information is given to women who have pregnant women who have received a diagnosis of a fatal anomaly for a child in their womb. It's it's ensuring that they're they're given good information uh, about about perinatal hospice. Some really compelling testimony. Uh, on this bill, just really, really powerful testimony, including from a couple of uh, Catholic women about how important it was to them with difficult uh, pregnancies to receive just really, really good, solid information about ways in which they could be supported in welcoming a really sick baby into the world. You know, one in particular testified that um, when she gave birth to her baby, who did have uh, a fatal illness, her baby lived a very short time, but they were able to welcome that child, hold it, give it a name, baptize it, and, uh, and just shower that child with love and affection. Um, you know, Norman, I don't remember, you weren't in the committee room, were you? No, I wasn't. Um, Debbie and I had talked about this one quite a bit beforehand. Um, and so I wasn't in the committee room, but I was able to learn a lot through the discussions beforehand. Um, and one of the cool things, so when I had first heard about this legislation coming and the information and resources that would be given to the mothers, I was assuming it was basically like, here's the medical details, here's the life expectancy, let us know if we can help. But what we've found in through you know, the research and things like that is there's all sorts of resor- resources and help that some of these communities have. For example, Debbie Pease, our second lobbyist, she said, you know, she found these photographers in one community. Mm. I said, a photographer? She goes, well, yes, They're, it's their ministry that when they find out that there's a couple who's given one of these diagnoses for their child, they said, hey, sign us up. We want to come do photos with the family. We'll do a photo shoot, help them basically create that special memory and help them through this process. Yeah. So what kind of I originally thought was, okay, make sure the mother is given detailed medical information has actually become a lot more and there's a lot more resources and opportunities that communities have for these parents and families that are 
that are going through these tough situations. And, and one of the ideas too with this bill, Senate Bill 83, if you're just joining us, uh, perinatal hospice information is that women and families are really made aware of supporting loving environments. So they don't feel like they have undue pressure uh, to terminate the life of that really sick baby. So great bill. That one is through the Senate, made it through committee and the floor of the Senate really well and heading over to the House side. And again, uh, you can check out sdcatholicconference.org. Um, find the link to, to click for the latest update on the bill. The next one we'll turn to is House Bill 1051. Um, this, this is a bill that's being called a Born Alive Protection Bill or an Abortion Survivor Protection Bill. This, this bill um, it made it through the House side and is now over in the Senate, had its first Senate uh, committee hearing this morning. Um, the, the action in, in Senate Health and Human Services was deferred until their next meeting Kind of unfortunately, there was a late breaking amendment uh, in the middle of the committee from a lobbyist for Sanford, Sanford Health, uh, and the legislators wanted to take a little time to review that amendment. They could really use your encouragement and support. What the bill essentially says is that any child uh, born in the state uh, who has survived an abortion attempt, that child is entitled to the exact same medical care as any other child of the same gestational age. You know, it's really an equality bill that um, all children equally deserve the protection of the law, regardless of of whether or not they were desired uh, or have had an attempt made on their life. And and it's got some penalties in there for failure to abide by the law and also some reporting in there. Uh, Norman, any comments on 1051? Um, Maybe just a little bit of background that, again, you know, you learn a lot about these issues as you're working them. Um, so we've actually had some form of born alive protections on the book since the 70s, but basically the statute hasn't been updated since then. And so there was some skeleton of, of protections there, but like you mentioned, we've got you know, additional protections, penalties, et cetera. And also one of the really interesting things I found about the legislation is the whistleblower protections. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, let's say a nurse sees something, Dr. So-and-so set the baby aside to pass away. Yep. And that nurse makes a report. Yeah. She's, he or she is protected. So that was one really interesting thing. I mean, we have whistleblower protections for all sorts of things, but I thought it was very creative that they made sure to add it to 1051 because maybe someone else saw something and they wanted to report it and then they should be protected and not, you know, held liable for what somebody else did. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, well put. So that's a, that's a great bill. You know, we're, we're really um, working hard to get that uh, through Senate Health and Human Services Committee. And for anybody that's, that's passionate about born alive uh, infant protections, they can reach out and email those Senate Health and Human Services Committee members. Uh, got a whole long list of bills here, so we're going to keep moving. Uh, you're joining Chris Motes on Faith and Politics, and we're kind of giving a, an update on the South Dakota legislative session. A couple of bills that, have, uh, that we were supporting and have, have met their met their end, which happens in the legislative process. Um, it's always hard when it happens to your bill, a bill that you're back in. The first one is House Bill 1076, uh, which was being called the Vital Records Accuracy Act. It had, it had come to some legislators' attention that there were some South Dakota judges that were modifying birth certificates uh, later in, in life um, and, and manipulating the category of sex on those birth certificates and and changing them to reflect something that wasn't actually true, that wasn't actually the the person's sex. You know, this is, um, you know, perhaps goes without saying a sensitive political issue um, due to the kind of some of the emotions that get bound up in it. Yet at the same time, 
you know, there's, there's a conviction that we've got to tell the truth about some really basic things about who the human person is. One of the, one of the greatest uh, questions in the world today, we've got a lot of confusion out there. Who is man? Who is the human person? Um, you know, sadly, this, this bill was defeated unanimously in the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Um, went down really, really hard. It, it, it's hard to receive a vote like that. And one of the encouragements that I just give legislators, especially Catholic legislators, um, who struggle with this issue is that, you know, this is this issue is not one that's necessarily going away. Um, to quote, um, to quote uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, who was writing as the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. This was back in 2002. A doctrinal note um, aimed at providing formation to Catholics in, in politics. He wrote, "When political activity comes up against moral principles that do not admit of exception, compromise, or derogation." The Catholic commitment becomes more evident and laden with responsibility. Here's a, this is the line that I think is so striking. In the face of fundamental and inalienable ethical demands, so kind of unchanging truths, if you will, Christians must recognize that what is at stake is the essence of the moral law. So, and that was a point that I made with the legislators is that, you know, the very concept of law itself depends upon certain things being true and our, in our language having stability. So I'm uh, disappointed to see that, uh, that bill die, but um, as I said, that's kind of the nature of the process. Norman, anything to add on 1076? Yeah, so as I was mulling over this loss, um, I was kind of comparing it to, you know, to different bills we've seen on this general discussion as a whole. For example, we've had discussions over privacy um, for students in school. We've had legislative discussions on the correct medical procedures, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, what's the best way to help help a child, help an adult, help anyone in this situation. And then this one was getting back to basically down to basics of how will the state in law recognize a person? Mm. How do we as a society recognize a person? So when we can argue over privacy or we can go a little bit more fundamental and we can argue about what the best path forward is for an individual struggling with the fact that they believe that their gender is completely in, in conflict with their sex. Yeah. We can just have those discussions, but this one got down to the basics. Yeah. What's the document going to say? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is an official government document. Uh, are we okay with it saying something that's not true? So anyhow, uh, who knows what the future holds on, on this issue, but for now, House Bill 1076 um, is, is defeated. Yeah, and, and if I could close real quick on sure. before we move on, Chris, there's one, a quote from John Stone Street that I just had to write down in my phone. And he said, when Christians fold on this issue, they are saying something about God, not something about gender. Mm. How true that is, actually, that we, and this is, this is one of the basic points that Catholics will recognize from uh, St. John Paul II's theology of the body is that that his whole exposition on the theology of the body, sort of who is the human person and how do we actually understand theology? Who is God by the order that we observe in creation itself, especially us, the pinnacles of his creation? He begins that, that whole theology with a reflection on Genesis, you know, and made in his image. Um, that we, I mean, we could talk, we could do a whole series of podcasts just on that point alone. John Stone Street, uh, really, just great, great point. Mm-hmm. Um, got a number of bills to move through here, so we're going to keep keep moving along. Uh, Senate Bill 98 was a bill that would have eliminated the death penalty 
in, in most instances in South Dakota. It would have preserved it uh, in the case of the murder of a prison guard, police officer, or firefighter on duty. Senate Bill 98 uh, did really well in Senate Judiciary. I think uh, made it out of the Judiciary Committee by a vote of six to one, but then just was actually just defeated um, an hour ago as we're recording here on Monday afternoon by a vote of uh, 20 opposed and 13 in favor to excuse on the floor of the Senate. You know, this is, um, I'll just say this is a tough issue in South Dakota. There's kind of a, a lot of um, longstanding support for capital punishment in limited circumstances. You know, uh, thank God in South Dakota, at the very least, it's a rare occurrence. I, I want to say 20 times in the history of our state and territory. So 16 times as a state, four times as a territory have we used capital punishment. And, and our basic point as the Catholic Conference here is to say that, look, opposition for the death penalty um, is to oppose the death penalty is not to be soft on crime. It's to be strong in the dignity of life. So, so proud to support that issue and to stand up uh, in favor of Senate Bill 98, which unfortunately was defeated today. Kind of turning now, if I can, to a host of, of other bills that were just, uh, we had a big deadline in the middle of last week and have finished kind of a review on some other bills. Um, so some, some bills that just got posted to our website today. Um, from the top here, House Bill 1217 is what is being called a Fairness in Women's, Fairness in Women's Sports Bill. This is a bill that is, um, isn't new necessarily to South Dakota. We've seen this one come up in, in past years, and the Catholic Conference has been uh, proud to support it. And the basic idea is that these, these theories of gender in which we come to understand um, human nature as sort of endlessly changeable and changing, um, it's played out in ways that are really unfair, uh, especially to women girls who had to fight really, really hard decades ago in the field of law and policy to get Title IX in place, which of course provides a lot of fairness for girls' sports. Um, you know, one of the, I think, really beautiful things about House Bill 1217 is that it's being sponsored by two women who are making these arguments as, as women themselves, as mothers, as, as former athletes. So, Norman, anything to add on 1217? Yeah, so I think... The need for 1217 is fairly pronounced when you look to, for example, let's look to Connecticut. At one point, there were these 15 different state titles held by nine different girls. And within a year or two, two males have taken those 15 titles. Mm. Within a year or two, two males have taken 15 titles that used to be held by nine different girls. Yeah. Are girls being pushed out of girls sports? Yeah, it's, you know, and I think a point to make too is that, um, you know, when a spot on a team is given to somebody who's a boy, not only do we know that like that's, it's not fair physiologically, like it's indisputable that, that, that boys, in this process, this physiological development, it's set in motion at the very moment of conception. That's the first instance at which we can, uh, observe scientifically the differences, but by the time um, you know puberty rolls around, we're talking about enlarged hearts, more blood capacity, bigger lungs, bigger bones, bigger muscles, uh, height, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not only is that just sort of unfair on its face, but it, what it means is that if a spot on a team goes to a boy, 
then there's a girl who doesn't get that spot. So even if, you know, it's not, doesn't play out necessarily in like uh, this Connecticut case with all the state titles going one way, you know, that's, that's a chance that a girl doesn't have to play. You know, it's a chance she doesn't get to, to compete for maybe a college scholarship or to frankly just have, have fun and, and enjoy, um, you know, enjoy sports, which are, which are really a great part of, of a child's human development and, and building of character and discipline and so on and so forth. And the more, the more states we see that are allowing males to compete against females, the more stories we're getting. Yeah. Sometimes it's a loss of a state title. Sometimes it's a loss of a scholarship. Sometimes it's just a loss of a spot on a team, a loss of a chance, a loss of an opportunity. And we're getting more and more stories. And one of the things that I know we, these issues come up, whether it's privacy or sports or treatments or birth certificates, like you said, the issue is not going away. Um, and there's, there's plenty of times where someone will give us this, they don't say these words directly, but they're just kind of tired of talking about this issue. Like just mm-hmm. stop bringing it up. Let's just talk about other things. And a reminder that someone gave me a while back, they said that refusing to even consider the ethics of a thing is itself settling the ethics of a thing. Yeah. So when How they true. try to just push this off, <clears throat> they're not taking a neutral position. Yeah. They're saying, just stop bringing this, stop bringing this up. Just stop questioning what's happening. Yeah. What's happening is correct. Just, just stop bringing this up. Yeah. It, you know, and, and we got to acknowledge yeah, these, these are hard issues to talk, talk about because of the emotion involved and the passions can be inflamed, but that's really, I think an opportunity for us as Christians to demonstrate reason. You know, we've got faith and reason and how do we how do we engage in civil discourse, just you know in um, in a measured way that isn't afraid to engage in something that's uh, contentious, but at the same time does so with 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 balance and just calm attentiveness to truth. So, twelve seventeen, uh, you can find more information about that bill on the Catholic Conference website. Turning to a pair of education bills. Um, there are two bills that that the Catholic Conference is supporting and would like uh, would like you to consider supporting too. Senate Bill 177 and Senate Bill 175, both uh, touching on the the topic of of education. Senate Bill 175, uh, taking that one first, is a bill that tweaks just a little bit a statutory program called South Dakota Partners in Education. This is a program uh, that's been around for a couple years now, and it it creates a scholarship program for children in, in need that come from families that maybe can't afford private school without a little bit of help. Um, right, right now, the, the program's doing well. Um, it's, it's got the funding it needs, but there's a, there's a problem insofar as there are some families that are finding they're not eligible because the eligibility is restricted to certain ent- grades that are like the entry points. I want to say it's like uh, kindergarten, first, and, and ninth. They're saying, hey, let's, let's just keep the program as it is, but let a child enter in any grade um, because there are some otherwise qualifying families that are being kept out right now. You know, that's, that's a, a, a program, you know, when we start talking about education policy, some Catholics might wonder, like, well, okay, where, where can I find in church teaching, you know, some of the, um, some of the teaching that really explains, you know, and helps us think um, through education policy, there are two really great documents. You could um, they're they're summarized in the Catechism at twenty two paragraph twenty two twenty one uh, through twenty two twenty nine. 
But if you want to go right to the source, there's a document of the Second Vatican Council. It's called Gravissimum Educationis. It's uh, the Council Father's Declaration on Education. And, and then there's also John Paul's great declaration, Familiaris Consortio. If you listened, tuned into our episode last week, you maybe heard us talk a little bit about these, but there are these twin principles of, of the freedom of parents to direct the education of, of their offspring. And even they need to have true freedom to choose which school they think is best for their child or which type of education is best for their child. And, that, and, the, and the Second Vatican Council fathers couple that with actually a duty of civil authority to ensure that this freedom is true. It's not just theoretical, but it's, it actually exists even economically. So the, the fathers actually even mentioned public subsidies. Um, the Partners Program, Partners in Education, isn't exactly a public subsidy. It's uh, a tax credit-based program. But all the same, it's, it's well-founded uh, in the teaching of the church. And then just turning uh, quickly in our seven or so minutes remaining, 177 is a homeschool bill um, supporting and affirming parents who are choosing other forms of education that are either not public schools or not your traditional you know, Catholic schools or other private schools. Of course, lots of places in the state, um, those aren't options uh, for parents. Um, Norman, do you want to say a few words about 177? Yeah, so 177 kind of, you could break it down into three different categories, um, notification, testing, and activities. Um, so the first notification, so right now, for example, if there's a family who is filing to educate their kids at home, right now they have to file that every year, two people sign, and it's notarized, basically signing that these are your children. So there's a lot of, when I mean, you could call them outdated provisions. So if you're, if you're homeschooling, do you have to file every year? Mm-hmm. 177 says, if you give us your filing, your paperwork, you're good to go. Yeah. If you move, let us know. If right. you're going to a different school, let us know. Streamline things a bit. Yes. Once you file, you filed. Yeah. Then moving on to testing. Um, they're basically removing a lot of the testing requirements because they've found that nobody's looking at them or using them. Yeah. And then activities basically saying right now it's up to each school district to decide whether or not homeschoolers are allowed to come and participate in activities. Yeah. 177 says it's going to be, again, streamlined across the state. They're allowed to participate. Yeah. And the whole kind of the Catholic principle behind this is that it's actually the duty of civil authority to support and affirm parents uh, insofar as they're fulfilling their sacred duty, their sacred obligation is the church's language of, of education. Um, so, so, so great, great bills. I encourage you to hop on the website, take a deeper look. Um, real briefly, the Catholic Conference is in support of House Bill 1201 is a bill to put um, video lottery regulation in the control of local authorities. So kind of take it away from the state level. Many Catholics in the state will remember, you know, 20 odd years ago, the bishops of the state, both dioceses, bishops were pretty engaged on video lottery when it was a bit more of a prominent um, political issue. You know, uh, this, this bill is an interesting bill insofar as it builds on the Catholic principle, as we understand, subsidiarity, which is essentially that um, an authority of a higher order should, shouldn't intervene in uh, unnecessarily or unduly what is properly in the realm of a kind of a, a lower level, if you will, community. Um, so we, of course, know that we can describe what, what social scientists call the ABCs, of video lottery, addiction, bankruptcy, and crime. You know, these are well-documented. And it's not to say that, um, you know, somebody that, that puts a buck in a video lottery machine for, for recreation 
Catholics uh, don't understand that to be intrinsically evil, might be at odds, uh, pun intended, with some of our Protestant brethren. Um, we, don't, we don't understand gambling as an intrinsic evil, but we do really take a hard look at some of the ill social effects, which is why we want to give this to um, a ability to regulate it to state-level authority. Um, Norman, I'm briefly going to touch on a couple of pro-life bills, and then we're going to close it with Senate Bill 124. Sounds good. Um, so... Senate Bill 126 uh, up on the website. I'm not going to go into that one because, frankly, it's disturbing to talk about. It bans obscene childlike dolls. And then uh, three abortion bills, House Bill 1114, 1110, and 1130 are all pro-life bills that I'm really excited about supporting that that, that I I think really do make uh, really great changes to our state law 1110 is the governor's uh, Down syndrome diagnosis abortion ban bill. Um, really zoning, zoning in on that, focusing in on the eugenics aspect of some abortions. Um, so maybe we've got a, about two minutes or so left here, Norman. Um, let's close it out with Senate Bill 124. This is a bill that, that would really put firmly in our state statutes protections for religious liberty. Why would we want these protections right now, Mr. Woods? Well, I think you could throw that right back and say, is it okay that Caesar's palace was open when the church was closed? Yeah. Is it okay that you could go to the bar, but you couldn't go to church? That's right. So, so this is a bill that um, I, I think, I don't think it's going to be a controversial bill, uh, God willing, in South Dakota. But through the last year of the COVID ban- pandemic, which has been a challenge for everybody, without question, whether you're religious or not, whether you, whether you care about church or not. Uh, it's been a challenge for everybody, but what we've seen in other parts of the country from New York to California, and not just those places, uh, but I mean, we can even talk about Ohio and Oklahoma. There have been uh, government entities ranging from cities and counties all the way up to, to state governors who have treated churches unfairly with some really onerous restrictions as, as, Norman alludes, uh, casinos are permitting thousands of people in in Las Vegas. Meanwhile, a church is capped at 50 people, regardless of how, how big the church is. We've got liquor stores, uh, liquor stores open and churches closed. Actually, just, um, just in the last couple of days, uh, finally, California churches were permitted to resume uh, worship um, with, with a cap on numbers, but worship indoors. They'd been prohibited from worshiping in their churches regardless of the size of the church. Meanwhile, you know, you can, you can go, you can go shop for food um, for your body, but you can't go get some spiritual food for your soul um, inside, which, which just strikes everybody as unfair. So great bill, Senate bill 124. Any other comments on that one, Norman? I'll just comment real briefly on the, basically the perspective of the bill. And it's not that the government can never place restrictions on church or the government can never, do anything the church doesn't like or sees as discriminatory or anything like that. It basically, it just simply says that they cannot treat the church differently than they treat something that's non-religious. Beautiful. Well put. Well, that's our recap for this week, folks. I hope you'll join us again next week uh, for exciting new guests. Norman, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. And as always, folks, love to hear from you on what you're interested in hearing about. Don't hesitate to reach out. Go to sdcatholicconference.org. You can click contact us, you can follow our Facebook page, get on our our email list by uh, going to our website and clicking sign up. And, um, you know, you young people out there, we're now on Instagram. 
We are SD Catholic Conference. Until next time, live well. Thank you.